insight and awareness spiritual explorer, soul intuitive, emotional and spiritual mentor and award-winning author, Lorraine Nylon. Welcome explorers to the Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorers podcast. I'm your host Lorraine Nylon and I want to thank you for being part of the adventure. I have the absolute privilege of having Jeffrey Baseka today who is a holistic behavioural coach who uses data-driven mythology to explore why we behave the way we do as human beings. And I love how he explains this. He says, think of it as investigative reporting for your soul. So thank you for being here, Jeffrey. Thank you, Lorraine. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today and connect with your audience. So, and if you want to hear more of Jeffrey, he has his own podcast, The Light Inside, where he aims to deliver actionable insights into our unconscious behavior, leading to richer, happier, and more fulfilling lives. And you have a special topic that you are bringing with us today to talk about. So what, what are we going to talk about, Jeffrey? We are going to look at comfort zones, what we're traditionally taught and often patterned in our understanding of what comfort zones are and how we interact with those and how psychological comfort creates abundance and flow throughout our lives. Our intention is to illustrate and exhibit, explain how the process of mindfulness generates emotional integrity within our autonomic nervous system specifically and bringing with it emotional integrity, self-regulation, volition, efficacy, and when fully engaged, emotional and psychological comfort. Psychological comfort being our key word today. <laughs> Often what growth and evolution is, we're given and patterned that perspective that we don't grow unless we're uncomfortable. We're going to look at that from a different angle, I feel, today. And, and that is a very um, common mindset of that we need to, you know, like people are looking to hit rock bottoms, all those kind of things, rock bottom or even when people have got cancer, you know, they'll say, oh, they're going to have this, you know, awakening. But that's not necessarily true. So which point will we start on? So I'm going to start off by saying comfort zones often receive negative press. The idea that we need to break out of them or smash them is consistently promoted as something we need to do to advance and grow as human beings. You know, we're here today to explore what we can do to aspire to, to grow and evolve as human beings. Come across countless memes and diagrams depicting this, you know, throughout social media, through our interactions, through books, we so often hear that the magic happens, that mentality, the magic happens when we leave our comfort zone. Yet in contrast to that, psychological comfort allows us to emotionally self-regulate. It brings us into dorsal vagal activation within our central nervous system. And it also just feels a whole lot better than constantly being in struggle challenge all of this opposition that we often feel as we travel our journey to grow and evolve. 
And I also think too is it's how we define what is comfortable and what is uncomfortable because there are people that thrive in that challenge, you know, like they want to expand themselves and then there's people that will absolutely retreat as soon as they feel uncomfortable, which can throw them into emotional reactions of, you know, deception and manipulation and or shut down or all those sort of things. So I think it's, I think the problem with um, when we look at comfort zones is, is how do we respond to what we class as comfortable and what we class as uncomfortable? That's an interesting angle to look at because we are very highly conditioned to a lot of the ideas, a lot of the beliefs we have surrounding what it means to be comfortable, surrounding what values, what judgments we place on our present level of comfort, how others perceive us, how we're emotionally responding to that. Let's start by looking at what comfortable is by first looking at the role discomfort plays. Discomfort Mm -hmm. plays an important role in our emotional regulation as it can be a sign that something is wrong or off, that there is a need to change a behavior or situation. We look at that idea of discomfort. It's uncomfortable sometimes to feel our emotions. You know, if we're unfamiliar, it's a little bit foreign to us. It's a little bit out of our ballpark, so to speak. You know, we seek discomfort because our energetic and emotional familiar is that state of autonomic dysregulation where we're not thinking and feeling and processing through our emotions. It becomes a form of And that's where, and some people... Sorry, cut you off. Some people would feel that as as being really scattered. Do you know? Yes. You know, like yeah. So when you, if you're feeling really scattered, you've got that discord within yourself. And and some people that's their normal. You know what I mean? Like that is their actual normal. And then for other people, when they feel that, it's very uncomfortable because they feel out of control. You know, we learn those patterns largely through our childhood interactions. You know, if we're in a chaotic, disruptive environment, our parents aren't emotionally attuned. They aren't able to self-regulate, things of that nature. We've experienced a past in interactions where we feel certainty and predictability in similar situations. We actually mirror those things we've learned. You know, if we've learned not to be open and vulnerable and address our emotions, if rather than that, we've learned to suppress them, stuff them down or avoid them. If we've learned guilt and shame, if we've learned judgment on those emotions, we see the familiar in that. We see that as uncomfortable because we're trying to move away from what our autonomic nervous system is doing often to the point where we recreate such scenarios in the form of both defensive coping mechanisms and self-sabotaging behaviors. Mm. Yeah, true. And it's interesting, our response to familiar, because you have, you have certain groups of people that will gravitate to it. And I have one of my quotes that I put in all my books is, whatever you don't resolve, you'll become. You know, because you're going to repeat it. You can have people that absolutely loathe what they grow up in 
and, you know, I'll never become like, you know, dad or, or I'll never do that to my children, blah, 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 all those kind of things. And the next thing they know, they're automatically acting out the same patterns. And, and that's part of the problem when we are operating from an unconscious state. We're not acknowledging the depth of what is familiar to us and how it's impacting us. And we can, we can emulate exactly what we always said we were never going to do. And I think most of us have done that somewhere in our lives, you know, we, where we hear ourselves repeat what we, we hated hearing ourselves as a child or you know, we've all done it or yeah. oh, that sounds like my mother. Um, but it, it is that, that, that mindfulness has to come in where you pull yourself up on gravitating to what is familiar. And then you have the others that can be so adamant that they're not going to repeat the pattern that the pendulum swings all the way over the other side and they become very dogmatic in opposing what they fear repeating, but the actual control of opposing it can become become a problem as well. So we are very complex, aren't we? (laughs) Most definitely. It's interesting then in that regard to look at the role the autonomic nervous system plays, you know, in that action itself forms the nucleus of our unconscious behaviors. We have two areas of our brain that process separately in an activated, aligned and regulated state of ventral vagal activation of the central nervous system. Our prefrontal cortex is engaged. This is a center that controls logic and reason. Mm-hmm. When we suppress those energies, all of those energies start to form a resistive barrier. We start to kick into those fight or flight modes where we are avoiding the emotion. We're running away from it. We're suppressing it. We're pushing it down. We're resisting it. Because the, what the other reaction that we have with that is also fawning and hiding and fawning is where when we feel threatened we'll compliment we'll appease the person so we we can boost their ego why we deplete our own and then there's also hiding where we try to make ourselves really small i i call it doling down your shine we try to be not noticed. So there's all these different fear responses that we can have. Fight and flight are our two main ones. And as soon as we feel uncomfortable, and that may be triggering something in us that we don't understand, if we can acknowledge these fear reactions, it can be a way that we can insert some mindfulness and acknowledge it. Because normally what happens is when we go into reactive behaviour, the reaction takes us out. You know, we're too busy looking at the fear reaction to actually then look underneath it to see what motivated it. And then we have a have an emotional response to that we've been fearful without actually delving a little bit deeper to see what triggered us off. So being uncomfortable sometimes can reveal information to us if we're willing to listen to our bodies our feelings and our emotional responses. That's key to all of it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we at the end of the day, we do the best we can throughout the day. And if we can manage not to beat ourselves down for that, I think we've reached our goal. <laughs> I know I have. And that, that's been my hot spot lately. Is I don't feel that's playing down. I don't feel that shrinking. I don't feel I need to validate that. And I do acknowledge and accept, well, I can change that performance next time. I can do different next time. Yeah, when it's interesting. You it's that level of comfort. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. Well, I, I'm new to podcasting, but I've been, you know, like I've got a different sort of background, and, yes. it, and I'm, <laughs> I'm still critiquing myself. But it's, you know, like mine's fairly casual, and it's, it, it's sort of like as if you and I were standing in a pub or a cafe or something, and we had a conversation, you know, like where they would go. But the other thing that I've, I've, you know, I sort of discover different things along the way and go, okay, right. You know, so it is about critiquing yourself, but gently. So, yes. um, yeah, generally. <laughs> We're human. That's it. Yes, we, we are human. And that's the ultimate thing we have to acknowledge is that some days that humanness shows up differently. Uh, you know, we look at those ideas of consistency and looking for certainty. We feel we're yeah. certain every day we're going to be the same person, yet there's plenty of research out there. And I've had several conversations to verify that fact that we show up differently literally from moment to moment. Yeah, exactly. We talk about life authenticity. Is, yeah. yeah. Two life more balloon effects joined together. Yeah. Well, you know, I always say, you know, I class myself as an evolving soul and some days you'll get me and I'm really – quite good i'm quite <laughs> and other days you're gonna go what happened i'm gonna yeah. say i'm not sure so it, you know, i definitely have nice. my days where i am not on top of my shine and that's all right you know we <laughs> our light has a varying strength it's like a flickering candle you know <laughs> that is true that is true so, <laughs> i gotta find <laughs> So when we're looking at primary emotions, it also does depend on the particular person and their background. But we do have love that everyone responds to and everyone's looking for. And we also have joy where we feel ourselves, you know, respond positively and with lightheartedness to a situation. The other thing that we have is judgment where we will wind ourselves to a point and that it, that we normally bring in our negative self-beliefs when we're doing self-judgment. And the other thing is, of course, what we've already spoke about is fear and we can fear being judged, which is really interesting. So well, there's lots of different ways that we can look at, but they're, they're sort of the four that I would class as our, our go-tos that sort of determine where we're going to, to sit, whether it's a positive or a negative. And, and sometimes I don't like to look at it as positive or negative, just more as, okay, I've responded this way and I've responded that way. And and the other thing that we can have is, you know, I'll put it all together, is that resistance, denial, avoidance and, and codependency on what we class as familiar. And that creates a strong barrier that stops us from really exploring truth 
or acknowledging ourselves in that that moment of reality. And to me that creates a disassociation from our reactions and responses to what we're experiencing and that becomes a problem because there is a discomfort in there but there's also a disconnect from reality. So it's hard to get from that discomfort to a, whether it's a solution or an understanding depending on the situation. So it becomes this place where we we don't know how to work, operate in there and we don't realise it's our resistance, denial or avoidance to our own emotional responses, which becomes the linchpin that we lose. So the more that we become willing to sort of lean in for a want of a better expression, but lean in and own the truth of how we're reacting, all of a sudden that discomfort can become a signal. It's giving us information and we can work from that information if we're not disassociated from feeling ourselves. How do you sit with that one, Jeffrey? So in that regard, and thank you again, Lorraine, for spotting <laughs> me back through this COVID brain today. I'm, enjoy I'm enjoying your COVID brain. <laughs> my, my five, <laughs> five <laughs> primary emotions that lead us to all of our secondary emotions and how we feel and process. So in that discomfort, we can help identify the need for current situation, recognizing feelings that ultimately gain insight how to better align and regulate our emotional interactions. Identify yeah. the need for help, healthy coping strategies and can be used to reduce stress and re-establish emotional balance, restoring us back again to ventral vagal activation of the central nervous system. That is our ideal state of homeostasis, our ideal state of operation, self-regulation and flow. So we're going to break that down a little bit for our listeners because what you're talking about is when your system's in a calm state and you feel at ease with yourself and where you're at and it's where your, your nervous system, your thoughts, there's a unity in it where you're not... Yeah, so that, that, you know, to break it down into to simplistic terms. And when we're, when we're operating from that position where we are more connected to our thoughts and we are more aware and we are more receptive to having more information because when we're disconnected from that, what happens is little things can overwhelm us. So if, you, if you've been in a state where everything's going wrong for, you know, argument's sake, or you believe everything is going wrong. And then it's, it's the, and we always, you know, we always laugh about it. It's the little thing that takes you out, you know, like you, the, the house is on fire and the, you know, the dogs ran away and, and, you know, or your missus is with somebody else and all of a sudden, you know, you trip over a, a stick and, you, you know, you're picking up the stick and throwing it around and having a tantrum. And it's, it's that, that, that information overload, our emotions uh, have overloaded our system and we don't know what to do with it. So the opposite is to be in that calmness, which is what we're looking for, which makes it easier to regulate our emotions. Now we look at that state and how it's monitored by a process called allostatic load. That's our 
somatic experience, our body's overall experience of monitoring our state of homeostasis throughout our body. It monitors our energy. It regulates our endocrine system, regulates hormone secretion, monitors our breathing, controls our heart rate, our heart rate variable, our pulse, Mm -hmm. all of the elements that make us up. So often when we look at our emotional reaction, our emotional interaction, there's a tendency throughout society to cordon that off. You know, sometimes we relegate that to thought, to thinking. We're overthinking. We relegate that. No, it's a matter of the heart. Think with your heart, you know. Very seldom do we hear that element of the endocrine system or the central nervous system. We're starting now to tiptoe up to that in our knowledge, in Mm. our awareness of how all of these systems interact. You know, we look at our endocrine system. You know, it regulates things like our heartbeat by triggering hormonal release. It regulates our blood flow and our pulse. It regulates our gut. You know, we think about that gut action, that gut feeling we often have. Mm. We also think about that tightness and tension we feel in the pit of our stomach. We call it the pit of our stomach. It's it's happening throughout our entire digestive tract. Yet, as that interaction is happening, our body's dumping cortisol, (laughs) dumping additional stress hormones into our body. We start to feel that. (laughs) We, We underestimate all the, you know, if you look at it like a machine, all the different components that are are happening and it's all triggered by our emotions and our our thoughts and and the combination of the two and and what we're feeling, energetically feeling as well. We've ignored for a very long time our sense of energy around us. You know, we all do, we all we all talk of it. You know, you walk into a room, you cut the air with a knife. You know, we're energetically reading, but our body is responding to everything, which is brilliant when you when it work, when it's working well, <laughs> and, it, and it can be frightening when it's it's doing stuff that you don't understand. When we get out of that area of our familiarity and comfort, you know, it's. Very often we're triggered into fear by that insecurity we feel in uncertainty. We're not sure what's going to happen. We're not sure how others are going to respond. You know, that happens as we kick into that autonomic dorsal vagal activation. The system becomes overloaded by the stress triggers a different hormonal release response, and we kick into limbic brain. Mm-hmm. Finally came to me. The limbic brain is based in those primal fight-and-flight urges. Takes mm-hmm. all logic and reasoning offline. Our prefrontal cortex is hanging out there saying, but I've got a job to do here. But we keep repressing that by pushing those emotions down and blocking that interaction in our central nervous system. We don't essentially open up that gate to just allow those natural feelings to transpire, to allow that prefrontal cortex to start making 
logical and rational reasoning. Instead, we kick it back into that. I feel insecure about this. I'm unsafe about this. I'm uncertain about it. When I'm uncertain, I start to feel discomfort. In the discomfort, I try to hide from that emotion. Yeah. Your brain says there's something to fear and fight. There's something to yeah. run away from. There's something to escape. There's something to dissociate with to start to say, I'm removing my interaction and contact with this. Rather than allowing that resilient, open, vulnerable interaction to take place and say, but allow the prefrontal to do its job and form logic and reason without the fear, without that urge to resist it. Yeah, and that, that takes a bit of self-security that you will cope with whatever is about to happen to be able to not run off with those emotional responses and body responses. To actually, you know, because I always, I always say that one of the greatest things you can learn is to manage your own fear because you can't escape that you're going to have experiences that make you fearful. Making a decision can cause you to be fearful. The degree to it can change. But you, so, so it's about managing that, recognizing first and owning it and then, and learning how to manage that for yourself. Is it, is it, it's a big thing to be able to do that. We look at that idea of healthy fear and unhealthy fear, you know, that we equate a lot of times positive, negative. That's a bit subjective. Mm. Good and bad is definitely subjective. You know, all emotions have benefit. All emotions simply signal our awareness. It's nothing more than an internal, internal stoplight kind of make us pay attention to what's going on, pay attention to our environment, be aware. So as we develop psychological comfort, it plays an important role in our emotional regulation by providing a sense of safety and security for the inevitable uncertainty of life. We can burrow down. You know, we hear so much about what we can control. There's very little, idealistically, that we can actually control with certainty. At best, we interact, which in and of itself can be a little frightening at times, sure. can be a little triggering at times. We so often seek that level of certainty. I am familiar with this, yet that inherently becomes the wall that holds us in, that keeps us small. So it helps people to feel supported, accepted, and understood in their emotions, which can help them regulate their emotions more effectively. Yeah, yeah. And I always, with fear, I always look at it, there's two types, like to break it down very simplistically, there's two types of fear. There's the fear that you are feeling because your soul's saying, get in your reality now. It's a warning signal that something's going on. And it's the fear that we generate that we can, and we can do that with our thoughts, we can do that with our history, we can do it with all different sort of emotional 
anticipations and all the rest of it. So we can have this fear reaction on something that's not actually happening, just an internal world. So it's knowing the two difference, you know, and, and I know that's really breaking it down into very simplistic terms. <laughs> but if, 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 if you operate from that position of like, okay, is this a generated fear or is this something to fear? Then it helps you manage it. Because a lot of time we just generate our own fear and have this whole world going on internally that is just stopping us from feeling good about ourselves. And then then what we feared didn't happen anyway, so it doesn't really, you know, then we move on. But we've, <laughs> we've lived it, we've experienced it as if it was happening, but we've generated it ourselves. Crazy, but we do it. So why do you, why do you believe that people get stuck, so stuck? We, first and foremost, you know, we're patterned a lot of our emotional response. There's a lot of emotional conditioning. We look back at some of those things we learn in our environments, you know, whether or not we even feel our emotions to begin with. Are we taught guilt and shame around our emotions? Mm -hmm. Are we taught some of those instances of hiding where we feel our emotions are to be avoided. That's a big yeah. one. If yeah. we're not brought up in an environment where our emotions are made to feel heard, seen, and acknowledged for any reason, we start to feel that rejection. We start to kick into those avoidant patterns. That first and foremost is something we have to acknowledge and address, realizing that we've learned that pattern, that we're taught certain emotions are okay to feel and some are not rather than yeah. embracing that full natural range. You know, anger was a big one. I dealt and struggled with anger as a trauma response throughout my life. And that was one of my childhood patterns I had to heal. I had to go back and make amends with that. Why that anger surfaced so often in an unhealthy pattern. Part of that was the normalization that you came from an angry family background where you were hot-blooded. It was temper. Blamed it off a lot of times on our German heritage. Well, your German heritage. Germans are hot-headed, da-da-da-da. You know, there's all of this validation and justification for the unhealthy patterns. Yeah, right. Along with that, within me, came an unhealthy sense of shame. That took years and years. You know, I'm 52 years old. Just up until a few years ago, did I make that rectification with that that said, but anger doesn't have to be something to be guilted or shamed. If you express yeah. it in an unhealthy manner, that's counterproductive. That's not being loving and compassionate to yourself or others. Yet, don't repress that anger. Healthy anger is able to form a healthy boundary. Express it in a compassionate manner. You get very angry when you see injustice in the world. You get very angry when you see a child being emotionally or physically abused or mm -hmm. hear of that. I'm of the mind that that's a healthy pattern to be triggered by that, to have yeah. those feelings arise. 
in a balanced, healthy manner. Now, if your urge is to go out and do harm, you're crossing that line. If your urge is to wreak shame and vengefulness, less than loving, compassionate, empathetic interactions, you're forming an unhealthy pattern out of that. If you are struggling within your own emotional interactions, as I so often did, I didn't feel heard, seen, and validated based on the trauma patterns I had. I questioned my ability to be self-confident, to be enough, to simply have that value as a result yeah. of that. The outward action then was the pain, challenge, and frustration. All of the discomfort I felt was expressed in passive aggressiveness, aggressiveness, angry outbursts, all kinds of counterproductive defensive mechanisms, acting out, avoidance, denial, identification, looking at projection. You know, as you're feeling emotionally triggered, you're very violently projecting that a lot of times, physically, mentally, and emotionally. How did you start to identify your patterns? Because I, when I work with clients, the most important thing I do is get them to, we start, you know, identifying the pattern so that you can then, you know, you might catch yourself three emotions into the pattern that runs a cycle of 10 yeah. and you might eventually, you know, so you, which, which they can vary a little bit. So where they go. So how did you how did you actually start identifying your patterns? What made you take notice? Because a lot of people just just run them, and like you said, they just run with the justifications, and then this is it. This is as good as it gets. This is what I'm doing. This is me. But it, they forget that your uh, life's a learning curve. So what, how did you start to identify your patterns? What made so you do that? Stepping you back through that. Anger is a very easy one because it does tend to boil over. It does to be, tend to be very disruptive to your central nervous system. You know, you're releasing all kinds of cortisol. You're firing off all kinds of stress hormones. Your heart rate's very elevated. You get all the sweat. You know, you do all of these inward things that literally bubbles up and boils up. So it's very obvious because it's eventually going to overflow. It's eventually going to find its projection and its output. It's acting out. Mm -hmm. Rather than acknowledging that I'm angry and being able to step back and regulate, you know, being able to see that pattern first and foremost, you, you see it very obviously. Yet if you're conditioned to see that as the pattern and taught to either repress or avoid it, or taught to validate it and vindicate it, you mm. tend to go into those defensive mechanisms, those avoidance, the resistance. You tend to shut it down. You tend to run away from it. You tend to fight and flight. Mm -hmm. Over the course of seeing all of this adverse feedback, I'll, I'll title it and label it, identify it as adverse feedback. You know, your relationships start to suck. You start to have trouble communicating. You start to have trouble forming trusting bonds with other people because you're showing very 
threatening behaviors, whether it's aggressive or passive aggressive. Yeah. You start to push other people away. They start to feel that energy. It starts to shut other people down. You start to move other people into that regressive pattern that drags them down, that makes them shrink, that makes them feel small. It's easy to recognize those things if you're willing to get vulnerable and comfortable with the fact that you're doing them. If you remain in that discomfort zone where it's, I don't want to address this. You're running from it. You're hiding from it. You're fearing it. You're repressing it. You're denying it. Yeah. And the reality is all that does is, is in my terminology, is puts you on a merry-go-round of soul oppression. You're oppressing your soul. You're oppressing your, the truth of who you are. And then what you're doing is trying to invite people onto your merry-go-round to play in your playground, on your rules, which everybody can only last so long because of all of what you've just said. So it's, <laughs> it's, so, a, it's a fascinating thing because we do become very uncomfortable to acknowledge the truth of our own behaviour. But it's, it's, and it's, it's because we're, you know, shameful or guilty or because innately we know there's a better way. We just sometimes don't know how to go from A to B in in the, the process of how do I stop this behaviour and we have to allow ourselves to go into what is our unknown. If I'm not responding with anger, I don't know what I'm going to respond with. So you've got you to start practising and playing around with and pulling yourself back and then saying, well, hang on, how, how would I like to how would I like someone else that's sitting in their anger to be talking to me? Okay, right, that might be my starting point. There's all these different mechanisms that you've got to use to try and because you can't just, you know, I would say it's like giving up smoking. You can't just give up smoking and because you've got to replace that habit. You know, we're habitual. So you've got to give yourself something that will, you know, change those habits. The same for our emotions. can't just stop your anger and start being compassionate. You've got to give yourself permission to experiment and explore with different options. And then you'll find the stuff that works for you. We look at our emotions and they're like a garden hose. (laughs) You know, it's flowing through us and it's finding its path. That water is going to find its way through the path. We try to plug that up and eventually it finds a way out. You know, no matter what the emotion is, we've got to allow that flow of energy, that flow of emotion to find its path. Hopefully we allow it to find its way through our prefrontal cortex and utilize an aware, informed, balanced, calm interaction with that emotion rather than going into that survival, fight or flight. You know, I felt very threatened unconsciously by that anger. That was the core emotion and secondary. Secondary reaction was anger. Underlying that was fear. Yeah. Fear being the primary emotion that generally triggers anger. 
out of a fear of something, we become insecure. We feel challenged. We feel unsafe. Some of that was just growing up in an environment that had anger in it. Growing up mm -hmm. with patterns throughout my family of anger and having that be the mirrored environment. As a child, you unconsciously feel unsafe with that. You see, you know, I, I learned probably by about the age of seven or eight when you're cemented in a lot of these patterns to normalize that. And I did, <clears throat> did not immediately see that as a fearful thing, you know, could see anger and it did not literally consciously trigger a scared reaction, a need to, to run and withdraw. Actually, it caused me to mirror that back. It caused me to believe unconsciously that that was normal and accepted. We were reinforced that again, that it's a family-wide trait throughout generation to generation, from my father to my grandfather to my grandfather on the other side, my mother even, you know, involved in that cycle, my siblings, other family members, you know, cousins, nieces, nephews, aunts and uncles, where on my b side of the family, it was considered a family trait. Uh, you know, mentioning back, it's just the hot-headedness of your lineage even. We're looking back at a generational, very subjective trauma based on the perception of a family history and lineage. That, that keeps traumatizing the family yes. because the anger is constantly act out on each other. Yes. No one likes to be on the receiving end. I'm going to ask you the big question because the, the generational stuff <laughs> is, is a lot to do with humanity. So what, 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 do, what do you think humanity needs to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? That our emotions are a natural, essential part of our human existence, that all emotions have value, that all emotions are beneficial when we leverage and align with them rather than resist them and run away from them, avoid them. Yeah. Even in that anger, you know, turning back to that anger, how do we have a healthy, beneficial relationship with our emotions? Do we find things that are triggering and acknowledge that pattern? Is that a healthy trigger or an unhealthy trigger? You know, mentioning back, are we feeling marginalized and a little insecure in ourselves sometimes? Mm. Or do we build that sense of self that says, I am of value and worth. So I don't feel I have to act out my emotions. I don't feel like I have to run away from or avoid my emotions. Ultimately, finding that space of authenticity, I'm going to bring it into the conversation now today, that in order to be authentic, we have to experience whatever emotion crops up. It's an yeah. instant to instant thing. Some of that is pattern. We learn a lot of what we do culturally about emotions. We look at emotion like grief. One culture honors grief and represents grief by one set of standards, but you can take another culture 
in that grief, you know, rather than some of the crying and wailing and expressing some of the things that a, one culture might exhibit, another culture's way of dealing with grief is to shut down and avoid it. We're taught that then in that culture. Learning to address those emotions from that authentic place is first and foremost. Allowing it to be and exist, being vulnerable and open to it. What can I learn and gain in my awareness of this emotion? Yeah. And then how do I effectively leverage that in a healthy, beneficial manner? Yeah. Rather than avoiding it, running away from it, stuffing, hiding, projecting it becomes a big thing. Societally, yes. there's a lot of projection of emotion that goes on. Yes, definitely. A lot of and inference and transference. Definitely. And and for me, from my soul intuitive place, is that this is how I read the energy, is that feelings are in the flow of that moment and, and you can say it's a soul reaction and our, I think there's a misconception that our soul only feels the beautiful, you know, peace, purity, the reality is, is that your soul is feeling your true reaction and responses to whatever you are experiencing. So say it is anger. If, it, if you're in that feeling mode, you feel the truth of your reaction and it keeps flowing because it's just in a moment. If we then respond to that feeling and we do all the things that you've just talked about, you know, suppress it, use it, project it, um, play with it, you know, justify it, all those things without being honest about it, then it, it becomes emotional energy. The actual vibration of it changes because before it's a frequency that's flowing, now it's a vibration that's stuck in your system. And that's how I determine the difference between feelings and emotions because that's just how I can read them energetically. So that keeps us, as soon as something goes emotional, we have to be honest about it to convert it back to a feeling and your understanding of yourself naturally converts that energy. Something from that up. aspect, <laughs> our emotions come up, you know, rising again from that prompt from the central nervous system. Yeah. Yet we've been taught and conditioned to address that in a lot of different manners. You know, sometimes we look at that idea of overthinking, you know, can we have too many thoughts? That becomes a little subjective. Let's rename that a little bit. Ruminated thought is a constant mm -hmm. compulsive pattern of repetitive, redundant thought first and foremost. Generally, those thoughts are of a negative or adverse nature. I like to frame it more as adverse and unhealthy. Yeah. The pattern of thought isn't generating a beneficial outcome for us. And I always say ruminating, you know, when you're ruminating because you're reliving a story that is never, and you're not taking yourself to a solution. And, and if you're doing that consistently and constantly, then it's ruminating. Because when you're there's a you know when you're processing, you're looking for an understanding, or an acceptance, or a solution. Because sometimes there's not a solution to 
a problem. It's just I've got to accept it is what it is. That's what happened. Can't go back and change it. Or if it's something that you can create a solution that it can go from A to B and that's beneficial to me, then you've got a different process. But ruminating doesn't go any. It's just reliving the emotions by generating up the thoughts. Kicked into that dorsal vagal phase of our autonomic activation again, where it takes prefrontal offline and it kicks us into the limbic system. The limbic system only knows those survivalistic urges that keep us alive. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, run away, shut down is the end bottom of that that then kicks us into sympathetic activation where our whole instinct that is to become small and create that shell, that bubble that holds everything out, that holds everything potential from ever escaping us. The one process for traveling through that. And this was one of the simplest patterns I learned to get through that. Think it, feel it, process it, release it. Involves every interaction throughout your somatic experience, all of your embodied processes that allow you to be a functional human being. Are we thinking it and thinking it and thinking it and thinking it? Is that same redundant, non-beneficial pattern happening? Is that adverse pattern happening? Or do we allow ourselves to feel it? You know, are we acknowledging the processes of feeling emotions? Are we noticing when our heart starts to race a little bit? Or we get that tightness in our gut when we start to sweat a little bit, when we start to have that elevated heartbeat first and foremost. It's acknowledging that our body is a holistic being. It's a holistic set of processes processes and systems. Recognizing where it's surfacing. You know, headaches are a triggered sign of stress and anxiety. We have to first acknowledge that those things are signaling our awareness that we're out of bounds somehow, that there's something to be present with. Are we experiencing healthy stress or unhealthy stress? Is this situation and set of circumstances genuinely a threat to my well-being? A lot of those things are signaled through that genuine emotional interaction. When you're in an abusive relationship, You might be real angry. It's beneficial to be angry because there's a very real threat, either mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, that does challenge your well-being. Yeah. How you address the worst thing you can do in an abusive relationship, which is where everyone ends up, is to shut down your emotions because you'll numb out to the reality of how it's impacting you. And somewhere along the line that's going to come back. And that's, you know, you know, I mean, it's whether you get to a point you've got no more room to suppress. But most times in an abusive relationship what happens is that numbing out and what that means is that you're going indifferent to yourself 
and indifference can hold for a very long time. Anger will peter out, you know what I mean? Pure joy will peter out too, you know, So because so, it's moving. But indifference is one of those that can just hold you there, which is the worst thing that can happen to you in, in an abusive relationship. But it is a very, very common response to abuse because we go into shock and suppression and then it's about trying to just manage what is happening around them. But it's it's interesting because that reintroduces something new to be indifferent to yourself. So you can be really angry that someone's treating you poorly and then when it, it's consistent and consistent and consistent, you know, like water wears away stone, is that then eventually where you end up is in that indifferent to yourself and that's that's where you have to come back in and and work out how to start having compassion for yourself. And you may need your anger to get you back to that compassion. Yeah. Now, there again, that anger is just acknowledging that this is triggering to me, that this does cause me these stressful, chaotic interactions. Yeah. Psychological yeah. distance is yeah. our key to reconnecting with that. We kind of look at that and it seems a bit contradictory. In order to connect with something, we're creating distance. Well, when you're overwhelmed and triggered and in the thick of something, sometimes we have to create that mental psychological space to step back. Sometimes we have to very realistically, in a physical manner, create that space, that boundary. If you're in a narcissistic, abusive relationship, especially one that's wrought with physical and emotional abuse, Sometimes you have to very physically create that boundary and remove yourself from that situation or create that physical space. Mm. Yet psychologically, we also have to take that space to think it. This is my emotional response to feel it. What is being triggered in me? What is my emotional activation here? Am I feeling that stress? Am I feeling that insecurity? And stop and step back a little bit. Say, let me allow this space to recenter, refocus, and reframe this experience. When you're emotionally triggered and you're in that pattern of activation where you're just simply reacting, I'm emotionally hurt right now, so my response is to lash out, to go into projection, to act out. Or it might be the opposite. It might be regression into withdrawal. Sometimes you have to stop and create that space by practicing mindfulness. I'm aware of this. I'm taking a minute to clear my mind, to kind of control my breathing. Mm. Boxed breathing through somatic therapy is a great step. You know, you're taking the time to actually think about how you're breathing. If you focus on that, you know, you, you got to think about it. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, can't it's, it's, mind less about it yeah. if you want to be engaged and involved with it. You have to bring that back in 
and say, let me become a little more aware of how I'm breathing. It's very rapid, very short, or maybe sometimes even I'm holding my breath, which yes. triggers all kinds of unconscious fear response in your body. Your body says, I'm not getting the very air I need to yes. live and survive. Unconsciously, your brain is still online in that limbic brain, struggling and fighting, trying to resist and find its way to breathe, stopping and acknowledging that, bringing that awareness back to how am I breathing? Yeah. Kicking that further. You know, are you using self-talk? There's a little bit of debate on how productive affirmations might be. Nevertheless, being aware of what you're thinking and how you're expressing that, even within your own self-talk, brings us back to that state of awareness. Let's look at this. Is this kind and compassionate and loving to me? Or do we kick into some of the shame and guilt cycles? You're so stupid. Why do you do this? You're not worthy of this. You know, all of these challenging things, it simply starts beating us up psychologically. Yeah. Starts diminishing us, starts making us feel small. Yeah. The value in that is just simply being aware of how you're viewing that present moment, how you're reacting or responding to that emotion. Am I responding to it in an effective way or am I just reacting out of some of the suppressed emotion? You mentioned back before how I started to acknowledge those patterns and shifting my own anger from unhealthy anger into healthy anger now. It was realizing when I was triggered and the urge was to just act out. You know, did I yell and shout at somebody? Did I hit and punch walls? I was fortunate. I generally did not get to that point where I acted out in direct physical contact to contact violence with people. I did throughout my teens and early 20s have a tendency to engage that kind of physical fight mentality. You made me angry. I will step up and fight you. Mm. Only a couple incidences, and I'm not trying to validate and justify this consciously. Unconsciously, yeah. I know differently. Nevertheless, it did not frequently elevate to that, yet it still surfaced outwardly, you know, in the yelling, in the throwing things, hitting things, punching things. Until I could recognize those tantrums, yes. Yeah. And it was the acting out of a child that didn't feel comfortable and secure. Yeah. It was an and insecurity and fear underlying that. I, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of self-awareness, self-observation. And it's through that willingness to be aware of your own self that creates changes in your patterns. If you don't have that first step, you don't go anywhere. If you're not prepared to be honest with yourself, you're going, you're just going to sidestep it, you're just going to justify it. So it, without that self-awareness, which is really what when we're talking about evolution or processing our emotions, it starts with self-awareness. And if it's 
if it's um, we're using hindsight, we're using self-reflection that, you know, like we're, we're looking at something that has occurred so that we can be honest about it. So we can take the lessons and start using them in our moment, present moment, or as we move forward, which is what you're saying you did, which is brilliant. You know, like you, you're a lot happier now. So, so what's your, <laughs> what's your yeah. sum up of, of, of the comforts? Like, you know, how important is it to really be honest about our comfort and discomfort zones? Yeah, there's, again, that stark contrast of awareness. Are you comfortable with not addressing the feeling? Do you seek the solace of that? Are you comfortable That's a really good question. with the Are unhealthy? Are comfortable pattern? not doing that? Yeah. Or can Sorry. you shift that comfort that now I am comfort with the act of growing? I am comfortable with the act of change. I am comfortable with whatever emotion might arise. Psychological comfort is just that ability to engage and cultivate self-compassion and then be vulnerable to seek social support, to seek outside, not necessarily validation, but simply that in a relation of I'm here to support you, I'm here to trust you, I am here to be available for you. I am also here to exhibit healthy boundaries that keep you from stepping out of that alignment. Very interesting. No, very, it's very like interesting. So many things in life. I, I saw Garth Brooks, the American country singer, a while back that was talking about his path through life. And he said, life is like this. Everything has an equal and opposite. What's on the so other side? Are we willing to flip it over and look at the different angles and different aspects of things? Or are we emotionally rigid and locked in only seeing one frame of reference? Yeah. Yeah. That vulnerability, Two sides of that vulnerability, openness, curiosity, and consciousness allow us to open up and simply become more available to allow those things to flow through us, to allow more of our soul light mm. to shine through us. Yeah. And I, I call that the core essence. Allow the core essence to be your compass and and to be the, the natural flow, which it is, and allow it more space. Because it's, it's, oddly enough, it's actually a lot stronger than our emotions, but... Because we devalue it, we don't allow it to flow. And that's what <clears throat> dulls down the shine of consciousness. And we put yeah, too yeah. much value on the stored emotions that are not who we are. It's what we've added to our emotional baggage. Put the big thick jacket over the top of us and we start to believe we're the jacket instead of what's <laughs> underneath it. That's such well, a I think it's time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's time to play flip the book. Would you like book one, two, or three? I'm going to feel this first. Mm -hmm. Let's go with book three today. 
book three, and that's what I call the big book. So it's your inside. No, yeah, you've got Even you've got the big book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's a big difference between all of them. So you know, so you've got to pick a number between one and four hundred and thirty. Three hundred and seventy-two. Three hundred and seventy-two. They're all large paragraphs too, so we'll be breaking them down. <laughs> so you. <laughs> You've got the choice of four paragraphs on this page. I'm going to stick with three again today. That's my magic number. Three. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, it feels like the start at the start. So, when you align to mankind's interpretation that your evolution is reliant on and at the mercy of pacifying a higher source, that you believe is separated from you, you devalue your own natural insight. Devaluing your own natural insight allows you to operate from the misconception that you are separated from your origins of truth. Truth is the core of your being, the life force of your soul, and your evolution is only reliant on you awakening to the truth of yourself. When you awaken to the truth of yourself, you feel your own individual resonance with truth. When you want your evolution to be about having control, you seek to pacify what you want, which means you create control structures of how truth should appease you. You use your wants and desires to create beliefs which separates you from the truth within your soul. I actually, I get you live that. You live the awakening to your own resonance with yourself, knowing that that's part of your connection to whatever you call your origins, your source. Would you agree? I agree. <laughs> yeah. There never truly is any separation within anything in the universe. Everything is one and interconnected. Yes. And there again, like meets like. And what? You, sorry, you go. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I'm only certain to the degree that I am uncertain of anything and everything. Change is yeah. the inevitable constant in life. Mm. Well, I think that's the dynamicism. You know, as your awareness broadens, so does your ability to observe life. So you see more layers, you see more depth. So you can have two people that can walk up to exactly the same experience and someone who is more self-aware is going to acknowledge, naturally going to acknowledge more because they're actually aware of more. And it's that part of ourselves that we're all constantly, if you're talking evolution, that's what we're trying to awaken is our ability to be aware of the multi-layers of what we're experiencing. And devaluing our own natural insight allows you to operate from misconceptions. And I think the reality is that when you devalue that, the desire to want to know everything and be in control of it actually causes you to devalue the exploration because it's as as you're willing to be in 
the unfolding of what you are now experiencing and allowing those different layers to come up to the surface so you can see them. And that can be from our emotional baggage or from the purity of our soul. Then all of a sudden you've got this beautiful expansion of your own awareness and who knows where that ends or if it does end. <laughs> if it does end, everything yeah. is constantly evolving and flowing forward. So. <laughs> I think the ultimate of that is to simply acknowledge isn't that curious what can I learn about it? Isn't that curious? What can I know about it? Isn't that curious? What do I lack in my perspective? Isn't that curious? Now what? Yeah. Now what? (laughs) I want to thank you for being on the adventure and I um, have enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, I'd love to thank you also, Lorraine. Namaste, the light in me acknowledges the light in you. This truly has been such a fun adventure together. And thank you for showing me grace today as I (laughs) rebound from this COVID experience. (laughs) I found it fun. (laughs) Like I said, I've learned to laugh and follow that flow. Sometimes life shows you exactly how you're vulnerable exactly how things can be frail and fragile are you comfortable to accept and acknowledge that or do you seek that control yeah to try to manipulate it and guide it yeah and get comfortable with it get comfortable be curious and say what next brilliant love it thank you jeffrey (laughs) thank you dear (laughs) 